Good to see y'all. We're going to continue our study in the covenants uh, tonight. Can anybody name any covenants that we've already studied? Anybody name one? Anybody right here from the middle section? Can you name one covenant that we've already studied? Preferably you're 15 years old or younger. Anybody? Mosaic. Uh, who said that? Mosaic. Mosaic. Right. Good job. Mosaic covenant. Uh, what about over here on this side? Can anybody name another covenant? Preferably 16 years or younger. Got the Mosaic Covenant. Can you all remember another one? Deuteronomic Covenant. All right, good. Now it's hard to say. Deuteronomic Covenant. Okay, over here on this side. <laughs> 20 years or above. <laughs> Can anybody over here name a third of the covenants, one of the covenants we've studied? We've got the Mosaic and the Deuteronomic so far? Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. Good job. Well, let's put the pressure on you guys over there. Good job, Andrew, coming through on that. Um, so we've named the Mosaic, the Deuteronomic, the uh, Abrahamic covenant. Um, we've looked at some others as, as, let's see, Deuteronomic, Mosaic, Abrahamic. Actually, I'd say those are the big three or the big two of the big three. Because the Deuteronomic and the Mosaic are kind of like the same covenant. It's just reiterated. It's 2.0, the Deuteronomic covenant is. At least that's the way I'm approaching it. The third one that we're, or the next one that we're looking at tonight is the Davidic covenant. And I'd say this rounds off the big three. You got the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and now the Davidic covenant. These would be the three, the big three covenants for Israel, for the nation of Israel. And um, as we come to this, because I don't have really a specific passage, even though 2 Samuel 7 is going to be one that we will spend some time in, and where you need to know that chapter, um, we don't have one passage that I want to read from to begin with, so I do want to go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in the study of His Word. And then we'll look at some of these passages together. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that we are able to see from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Father, how you've dealt with your people, and Lord, even that you called a people out to yourself for your name and for your fame. And Father, that through Abraham and the nation of Israel, a Savior was given, who is Christ the Lord. And Father, we can see how you've how you have brought this about through covenants. And I pray, Lord, tonight as we look at the Davidic covenant, Lord, I pray your word would be clear to us that we would have an understanding from you into it and that we would by faith receive it. Thank you for everybody here tonight, for the folks who can't be here tonight and for all those who are joining us online. Bless your word as it goes out. Father, may it run swiftly and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so the Davidic covenant. <clears throat> you might ask the question, what's the need for, the, for a Davidic covenant? And that's what we're going to see first of all the need for another covenant. 
the need for specifically the Davidic covenant. And I'll ask you to take your Bibles because we're going to look at a bunch of passages of Scripture together in order to understand this, the need for this covenant. And we're going to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 7, verse 6. I'm actually wrong about that. It's supposed to be Genesis 17. That's a typo in that. It's Genesis 17. And you know that this is one of those key chapters when God's talking to Abraham and establishing his covenant in the Abrahamic covenant. The first thing that we see here is that there is this promise of kings. And again, it's Genesis 17, not chapter 7. If you'll look at that with me in your Bible as I read it, but in verse 6 it says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. So he's talking to Abraham. And then uh, I believe it's verse 16. Yes, it is. And he says, and I will bless her. This is talking about Sarah. And also give you a son by her, then I will bless her, and she shall bear a, she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be from her. So there's, first of all, this promise of kings, which brings about the need for the Davidic covenant, because what we're going to see is the Davidic covenant has to do with King David and his descendants. Second thing, second thing we see here is the provision in the law for kings. Now, for this, we'll have to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 gives the provision for kings, even though there had not yet been a king. In the Deuteronomic covenant, in the law 2.0 of the old covenant, this, uh, these principles for governing kings are set forth in verses 14 through 20. I don't know that we should read all of this, but who knows? I might end up reading all of it, but I at least want to try to give you a taste of it. In verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, it says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest, your heart, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now let me ask you all, did that happen? By, by who particularly? Solomon. All right. Verse 18, Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. Notice the emphasis on the law of God. And that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Now verse 20. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. And that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So in in the law, there's a provision given in the law for kings. And he even... In this, there's even this foretelling of the people asking for a king, which we're going to see. Third thing here is there's a failure, the failure without a king. We're still in Deuteronomy. If you'll look at chapter 12, verse 8. 
Deuteronomy 12, verse 8, and just very briefly, we'll see here, and then we'll jump over to Judges. Um, it says in verse 8, You shall not do as all as you shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. All right? Now, if you'll go to Judges, you'll see a theme passage here in Judges. And it is uh, most clearly spelled out in chapter 21, verse 25, which is the last verse in the book of Judges. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that it is a book that is quite chaotic. And this time of the Judges, according to Acts, I believe it's chapter 13, lasted for about 450 years of these 12 cycles, apparently, of apostasy. And I like what, uh, I think it was, Randy, when you were reading from Micah 2, your, your version said apostasy. The New King James Version said turncoats. They were turncoats. They were traitors to where they were once following and loyal to uh, Yahweh, or to, in, as an Israelite, but they were a turncoat. They changed. And that was just eye-opening to me to see it from that perspective, that word. And Israel, in the book of Judges, they really are constantly being turncoats. They are apostatizing. They are then judged by God, by other nations like the Midianites, if you think about Gideon. And uh, then the, the Philistines with Samson. And God, they cry out to God. God raises up a judge to deliver them. Once they are delivered, then they fall back into idolatry. And God judges them by raising up a nation to rule over them. And this just happens over and over again. It's laid out, I think, in chapter 2, that cycle of apostasy. Why? Verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every did, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what's going on. And you see this. I have all the references there. I won't point them out to you. It talks about there being no king in the land. No king in the land. No king in the land. So apparently, having a king in the land over the nation should help guide the nation in the right direction. Instead of there being no law and no one to govern over them, They were just doing what was right in their own eyes. But God would appoint a king, and that king would command them, and he would lead them. Isaiah 55 indicates that with David. He would command, he was the commander over them, and he was the leader over them. So he, a king from God, should keep the the nation going in the right direction. But without a king, it was a failure. Next thing, we see the rejection of the king. In first Samuel chapter eight, now the time of the kings is over or the time of the judges is over with. Samuel is um, a seer and he is judging Israel. In first Samuel chapter eight, verse five, and I really do not need to read all of this, but you'll see there at verse five. And y'all say, okay, he said he's not going to read all of it or doesn't need to, so that means he's going to read all of it. Maybe not. All right, so verse 5, And said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is exactly what Deuteronomy 17 said. They're now in the land, and they are now asking for a king, a king that would be over them like the king of all the nations. Or... 
like all the nations have a king over them. They did not up to this time. Verse 2, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Good move, Samuel. That's the right thing to do. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Uh, So the reason I have the word king capitalized in this rejection of the king is because ultimately when they were seeking a king like all the nations, they were not rejecting Samuel as being judge over them, but they were rejecting God as reigning over them. Um, So that's not, not good. But now we'll see in chapter 12 the failure of a king like the nations. They ask for this king like the nations have. God gives them a king like the nations. Does anybody remember who that was? Who was this king like the nations? Saul. And that's what they ended up getting. A king that was like all the nations who did not have a heart for God. And God would eventually give them a king who had a heart for him. Now, in... uh, 1 Samuel 12, verse 12, and let me see if I can pick out some verses here. Let's, let's start at verse 12. It says, and when you saw, and this is at the coronation, Saul's coronation. What a great way to start out. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the kings who reign over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. And then he says in verse 17 that God's going to send thunder and rain. And then in verse 18, so Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel tells them, do not fear. And that he's going to keep praying for them, that he won't sin against the Lord by not praying for them. So this king ultimately that's given here is going to be a failure. Saul does that. In verse 13, there's the unlawful sacrifice of Saul. In chapter 14, there's his rash oath. And in chapter 15, he spares King Agag and he's rejected as king. So there's a failure that is going to come along with the king of the nations. Point number two is this. Let's see the contents of the Davidic covenant. I've tried to lay out in this first point kind of this foundation for a king and why these kings are needed. Um, Now let's look actually at this Davidic covenant, see the contents of it. Let's turn to 2 Samuel 7. Listen, folks, this is one of those that you need to earmark in your Bible. Let's say it as I have before. You need to brain mark this. You need to know 
2 Samuel chapter 7. It is one of the hallmark chapters in the Old Testament. You got to understand 2 Samuel chapter 7 to understand biblical theology. If 2 Samuel 7 isn't in your timeline or in your line of biblical theology, then you're missing something. You got to know 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because in this, we see the promise or the covenant that's made with David. That's where we get the Davidic covenant. It comes from this chapter. Now, it's also repeated, I think, in 1 Chronicles. And it's alluded to in other places, but this is where we first see it. All right, so y'all understand that? Is 2 Samuel 7 important? It is, all right? I've got to know that. You can't, let me say it, you can know that. All right, so first thing we're going to see is the setup here. Let's see the setup in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 11. We need to read all of these verses. And what we're going to see here is that David wants to build God a house, but the answer is going to be no. And then we're going to see that God, however, promised that he would build David a house that would last forever. All right, so we're going to read this because we want to see it from the text. This is key. I probably should have brought those points up after we read it. All right, so Bible's in hand. Let's work our way through this, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house that the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Verse 7. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house, me a house of cedar? Verse 8. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the men who are on the earth. Verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Verse 11, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Now notice the end of verse 11. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. All right, so David wanted to build God a house and now God says, no, you can't. 
But I am going to make you, I guess it would be more specifically, David, you are going to be the house. All right. So that's the setup. Now, under that same point, now let's see the seed. Because the question here is, how's God going to do this? How is God going to build a house for David? Beginning at verse 12, we see how he's going to do this. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. All right, now let me ask you all a question before we go any further. Do you remember the emphasis on the seed before? There's the emphasis found in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman. And then there's the emphasis found in Abraham through his seed. And it's capitalized meaning seed is talking about Jesus who would be the seed of Abraham. Here, I didn't capitalize it on purpose because it's not capitalized in the Bible. But we'll kind of see how this is going to work out. Works out in two different ways. All right. So when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. And seed means someone, a person that's going to come from David, from his body. Notice, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall, be, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish his throne or the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So we see these statements in here. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. I will chasten him with the rod of men. My mercy shall not depart from him. Alright, so you got this, this descendant of David who apparently is going to build a house for whose name? David's name? What does it say there? For my name. So the, there's going to be a person who's going to build a house. Now let me ask you this. Who ended up building the temple? Solomon. Solomon. And God's name dwelt there. The presence of the Lord. His loving kindness. His mercy dwelt there. All right, so you have one aspect here. The seed. The descendant of David. Who literally built a house for the Lord. It was the temple. Alright, now, let's go to the aspects of the Davidic covenant. The aspects of the Davidic covenant look like this. First of all, you have a conditional aspect. The conditional aspect. And then, 
Well, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 through 9. Uh, 1 Kings 9, 4 through 9. I think we're making pretty good time on this. The rest of 2 Samuel 7 uh, really is, we, it would be worth us, us spending time reading it, but it um, has to do with David giving thanks and praise to God for what he has chosen to do through him. 1 Kings 9, verse 4. All right, so what happens in... Um, right, chapter 5, Solomon prepares to build the temple. If you look back at chapter 6 of 1 Kings, do you, do you see a, a heading at the top of your chapter? 1 Kings 6. Anybody see? What does it say? Solomon builds the temple. So in 1 Kings 6, Solomon builds the temple. Chapter 7, there's other buildings. That's what mine says. And then um, various aspects being in the temple. The ark in chapter 8 is brought to the temple. And then in chapter 8, verse 14, there's a speech by Solomon at the completion of the work. Now... Solomon assembles the people at the end of chapter 8, verse 62. Solomon dedicates the temple. And now in chapter 9, God appears to Solomon for the second time. Now look at verse 4. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walks, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I've commanded you, If you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But, verse 6, and this is the conditional part. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set up before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And as for this house, verse 8, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this, done thus to this land and to this house? Then in verse 9, they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. That's the conditional part. So this promise is made to David, and there's there's a conditional aspect of it. But on the other hand, there is an unconditional aspect of it. In other words, though this physical building... This temple that is built is liable to be destroyed if the people do not obey and if the king does not obey. Because the way it goes is, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And you find that in Israel and Judah. Israel had only evil kings and they did evil. Judah had about seven or eight maybe good kings 
And they had periods of worship of the Lord and the temple was what it ought to be in some of those instances. But then there's this unconditional, there's this unconditional aspect where God's going to do this thing through the seed of David, a Davidic house that's not going to be destroyed. Now, I've given you some references here. I don't feel like we can read all of them. You, we've seen in 2 Samuel 7 and even here in 1 Kings 9 this uh, everlasting house. Um, in Psalm 89, 30 through 37, this is a messianic psalm. And in this, it says a few things, uh, let's see, uh, like this. He says in verse 33, Nevertheless, my love and kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even the faithful witness in the sky. So there's this unconditional aspect of it. In 2 Chronicles 13.5, Adonijah, Adonijah said that it's a covenant of salt that God made with David. I'm not really sure what a covenant of salt means completely. But it, it, salt preserves. And it also gives flavor. And it was sometimes, it was put on the grain offering in Leviticus 2. And the salt seems to maybe have a meaning of a preservation of and a tastefulness that this covenant has with it because God has made it a salt covenant. In Isaiah 55, 3, the mercies that are given to David are called the sure mercies of David. Isaiah 55, 3, the sure mercies of David. They're not in doubt. They're sure. All right, so let me ask you this. Solomon and all the descendants of Solomon and David, did they, uh, did they fulfill all this? What do y'all think? Yes or no? Did Solomon fulfill it? Did his throne last forever? No, he blew it pretty, pretty major, right? He had way more wives than any man should even think about having. And he worshipped other gods, and God divided the kingdom. And then afterwards, there were very few good kings. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Most of them did. And that brings us really to our last point, the Davidic covenant and Jesus. Here's what I'd like to, for us to look at in all of these passages. Uh, see how Jesus ultimately fulfills this. And there's a whole lot more that we should talk about with the Davidic covenant, but maybe this gives us a taste of it. So the first thing we see here, is, see here is how David interpreted God's words. So in other words, when David heard the promise of God to him in 2 Samuel 7, how did he process that? What did he think about it ultimately? Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 25. No, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 25. All right, so what happens here, this is the first sermon that's ever preached 
by Peter on what day? Does anybody remember what day this was on? As Lori said, Pentecost. That's right. So Peter preaches this sermon, and he who's he preaching to? Is he preaching to a Gentile audience or a Jewish audience? Jewish audience, that's right. So in preaching to this Jewish audience, he includes in this one of their heroes. Maybe he would be at the top of the list, David. Verse 25 is where he picks up talking about David. And um, then he quotes in verse 25 through 28 from Psalm 16. All right, now, this is a psalm of David who... As it says, for saw the Lord always before my face, I saw the foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Verse twenty seven, I'll jump down to that. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. This is not talking about David. Nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. Again, it's not talking about David. You have made known to me my the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing, this is it right here. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. That of the fruit of his body. According to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up. Of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So all of that, Psalm 16, is talking about Jesus, not David, And Peter makes that clear that David did not rise from the dead. Someone else would. And David knew from the promise that God had made to him that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come from his body. And Jesus would ultimately set up this house for God because he was raised from the dead. And we would find in Hebrews, I think, 3, that we are that house. All right, now how did the church interpret, how the church interpreted God's words? And I said church here, I hope that's the best way to put that. Acts 13. Acts 13, verses 20 through 23. Acts 13, 20 through 23. After that, he gave them judges. This is another one of those kind of historical sections in Paul's sermon in Acts. This is a good one. You should know it. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years. Now, you see why I said 450 years earlier. Until Samuel the prophet. 
And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Wrong tribe. Should have been from Judah. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave the testimony, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And now verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise, what promise? The promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. That's how the church, and maybe we could say the nation of Israel. No, we, that wouldn't be right. That would not be right. It's the church, how they interpreted the promise given to David. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He is the Savior who would come. Now, the next one is this. Um, we see in this, Jesus relating Him to the covenant. This is the one who the nation of Israel was always looking for. Can you imagine this promise being made? And, and let's just say, for instance, that all of Israel understood that God had said to David, you're going to have a son who's going to come from your body who is going to have an everlasting throne. Solomon comes along. The temple's built. And they may think, oh, this is the fulfillment of the promise. And then Solomon totally blows it. Even because of his sin, the nation's divided. And then, through the Davidic line, through Judah, all of these kings are born and they reign, some 20 of them. And every time another king comes along, perhaps they are thinking in their minds, this, this might be the fulfillment of the promise. This might be the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, the one who will reign forever upon the throne of David. Is this the one? Time after time after time, some almost 395 years. And then, none of them fulfill it. Babylon comes along in 605, 597, and 586, and ultimately destroys Jerusalem, tears down the walls, destroys the temple, and then the people are left, I would think, desperate. What has happened? How will God fulfill His promise? When will the Son of David be born who will fulfill 2 Samuel 7 and the promise? And then we find the Lord Jesus Christ coming. Let's see. What does Isaiah 53 say at the beginning of it? Let me just turn there and see it real quick. Mm, never mind. That's not the one I was thinking about. But in, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 9, it says somewhere in there, and I think it's... As y'all turn there, I'm going to try to find that passage I was just thinking about. Here's the one that I, I was thinking about. There shall come forth a root, a rod rather, from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. What was the one you found? Isaiah 35. What verse? You didn't write it down? 
Okay. But there's this idea that from David is going to come this king. All right, so looking at Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. It says, uh, with the two blind men that came to Jesus, when Jesus departed from there, or the blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Chapter 12, verse 23. This is really the, the passage that is, That is key. And it says in verse 23, And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Do you see it there? They were asking that question. Could this be him? Could this be the one who would fulfill what was promised? In Matthew 21 verse 9. on the, at the triumphal entry, it says in verse 9, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So that ought to give a little bit of meaning as to why the rulers got ticked off when they were saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Because this multitude of people was saying, this is the guy. This is the man. This is the one who's going to fulfill the promise. This is the Messiah, the Christ. Now, the next point is that Christmas, we should know this. We should know this Davidic covenant. And who Jesus is. Isaiah 9. Verses 6 and 7. Some of you might have this memorized. What does it say? For unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Notice verse 7. We, we don't pay attention to this sometimes. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Who fulfilled the promise? Jesus. And the promise of Him coming is even prophesied here in Isaiah. Look at Luke, if you would. We're almost done. Verse, chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. In this, this is when Mary, Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she's going to have a baby. And in that, um, announcement to her in verse 30 it says the angel said to her do not be afraid Mary for you have found favor with God and behold you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus he will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, the last one is this. There's a David yet to come. What in the world do you mean by that? If you were to look at all these passages that I have here, and we can't look at all of them, not going to look at all of them. I'm just going to turn to Hosea chapter 3. Because in Hosea, this gives you a summary of the history of, of, the, of the people of Israel, even to our current day. This verse 4 gives you the status of Israel right now. And then it tells us after this, and basically verse 4 tells you that they're not going to commit idolatry, but they're also not going to be able to worship God the way it's prescribed in the Old Testament. And then in verse 5 it says, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, 24, Jeremiah 30, verse 9, all use the name David to speak of Israel worshiping or following David again. I've heard a preacher say that that means David, literally King David, is going to be resurrected from the dead and Israel is going to follow him. That doesn't make sense to me. But it does make sense to me in this passage that when it says David, they're talking about the son of David, Jesus Christ, who will rule over his people, even Israel, as they turn to God in the latter days. So, the Davidic covenant. That's all I've got for you all on that. Israel's going to... You know, the scripture seems to tell us that, but I'm not so concerned about that as I am right now in all of us. Have you turned to the son of David, Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him that God raised him from the dead and that he is indeed the savior But can you say with confidence that He is my Savior? Not just the Savior, but He's my Savior. The Bible tells us that we are to believe in Him. And when we do that, did you know that you actually become a part of that house? The house that He builds that will endure for all of eternity? We become a part of it through faith in Him. If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the, tells, the Bible tells us that we are to repent toward God and have faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the physical expression of this, of salvation, is seen in the waters of baptism where we are marked as believers. Those who have been brought out of death, the consequences of our sin, and we've been, we've been raised to walk in newness of life, of life because Jesus died in our place. And the death that we deserve as sinners, 
Christ paid for that in our place. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah. He came to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for your word. There's a lot for us to grasp here in this. And I probably haven't even scratched the surface, but I do pray that this gives us some understanding into the Davidic covenant. It's it's certainly important. Thank you, Father, for, for making it so that from King David, the one who defeated Goliath and cut off his head and went through town parading, showing off that he had the head of the giant. Lord, we know Jesus has indeed come and he has slayed our enemies. Death, sin, and the devil, Christ has abolished their power over us. And, Father, we no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to be slaves to our sin. We no longer have to fear him who has power over death, who is the devil. But we can be released from that. I pray that, Lord, we will walk as people who know the Son of God and have been freed by the truth. But I pray, Father, for those who have not yet believed. Father, I pray that you would give them grace, that maybe even tonight they would believe your word, the testimony that you've given us eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless and keep us as we go from here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.